Really great to praise the Lord, isn't it? I have so much to uh, thank the Lord for. I shared with some of the folks at staff meeting at Grace Church this morning that last week I had the privilege of being present in a home where a man was dying of terminal cancer. He has two months at the most to live. Neither he nor his wife had ever come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and I spent about an hour with them and and watched God open their heart, and both of them received Christ. And then they wanted to talk about reunions in heaven. And I really was praising God. Someone was sharing also in staff meeting this morning that a couple of weeks ago there was a lady who came to our church. She had four children and no husband. She was living with 15 Mormons in some kind of a community kind of living situation. She came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now she has a very difficult situation. She's a single woman, no husband, four kids, living in a house with 15 Mormons. No sooner had she committed her life to Christ than they were just attacking her in every way. And to defend herself against the the, uh, onslaughts of the enemy against her newfound faith, she scooped up her four children and left and had nowhere to go. By God's grace, she came back to the church and... Through the generosity of some of our people, we were able to find her a home that she could afford and get her started and get her some money and and set her up. We were thanking God for the strength of her faith. That's not an easy situation. And then on Sunday morning when we came to Grace Church, uh, we have in the back of the church behind the gymnasium one of those great big uh, trash bins. You know, those not the low kind, but the double kind, the really big ones. And... uh, Sunday morning, uh, when we came to church, we found a man and his wife and 16-month-old daughter asleep in the trash bin. It was cold, and they had no place to stay, and uh, they crawled into the trash bin, husband and wife and 16-month-old baby, and uh, pulled some newspaper over them and kept warm all night. That'll make you thank God for a dormitory room, won't it? So we found them in the morning. In the bin, they all crawled out of the bin. One of our fellowship groups took a love offering for those people, got them a place to live. We've had the privilege of leading the father and mother to Jesus Christ. And so there's an awful lot to praise the Lord for, isn't there? And God is working in wonderful ways all around us. And it's great to be a part of his kingdom and to be able to rejoice in what he's doing. And I hope he uses you in a special way. Check the trash bins as you move around the campus today. Who knows? what you might find. <laughs> amazing, amazing. I'm sure the fellow who found them there will be checking our trash bin quite regularly, waiting for the Lord to do something wonderful like that again. Well, yesterday we uh, started talking about principles for making decisions in the Christian life relative to things that are not indicated in Scripture to be right or wrong. And I'm going to build on what we said yesterday and not necessarily go back over what we said. But just a brief reminder. Now, remember the, the basic premise on which we're, we're discussing things is that there are things in the Bible revealed as right. There are things in the Bible clearly revealed as wrong. And then there are a lot of other things in life that are neither right nor wrong. That is, they in themselves don't have some moral content. Somebody asked me yesterday, what about video games? Are they right or wrong? Well, a video game is a pile of electronics and plastic and so forth. It doesn't have any moral value. But you've got to decide whether it's right or wrong for you to play a video game. For some people, it might be a wonderful diversion. For other people, it might be habit-forming, right? 
So that's the kind of thing we're talking about. We want to know how it is that we can make decisions as Christians in regard to things that are not strictly forbidden or approved in Scripture. How do we decide what to do? And we said that we don't want to give you a, a, a highly defined system of uh, cultural rules so that uh, you'll know everything because we'll tell you what it all means and how you're to respond because that limits you and limits God and also confines you to a very narrow cultural definition. Better that you should have some principles, and those principles I've tried to reduce to ten questions. Yesterday we got five of them. Do you remember the questions? I hope you do. Number one, you ask this question. Will it be spiritually what? Profitable. Will it be to my advantage to do that? Will it be to my spiritual advantage? Will it increase my commitment to Christ? Will it strengthen me spiritually? That's the first question, and we call that the principle of... Expedience. Will it be expedient? 1 Corinthians 6.12. The second question was, will it build me up? Will it build me up? First of all, will it be to my immediate advantage? And then secondarily, will it put me in the process of spiritual growth? Will it accelerate my spiritual development? 1 Corinthians 10.23 says that whatever we do, we are to do it for the purpose of edification. So principle number two we called edification. Question number three, will it what? Slow me down in the race. And we talked about the weights of Hebrews 12.1, that we have to lay aside the weights and the sins. So we determined that weights and sin must be different. The weights, then, are those things which would encumber us that in and of themselves are not necessarily evil. Those onkos is the Greek word, that bulk that we might carry needlessly that would inhibit us in accomplishing the victory that God would have us to accomplish. We call that principle the principle of excess. The fourth question we asked, will it bring me into bondage? If I do this, will it have the effect of enslaving me? Is it in some sense habit-forming? I'll give you a classic illustration of that uh, in, in the sense of sin, but to show you this, I was at the bedside of a man who was dying of a heart attack. He was in his 80s, in his 80s at UCLA Medical Center. And as we prayed together and he was ready to go to heaven and uh, he had known the Lord Jesus Christ for years and years and years, he said, before I leave, before I go to be with the Lord, I just have to confess something to you that's in my heart and I need to get rid of it. Now, this is an 80-plus-year-old man, and I said, sure, feel free to do that. He said, I want you to know that I cannot get over my preoccupation with pornographic magazines. Boy, I was really amazed. I mean, I guess we kind of hope that by the time you're 80, you don't care about that stuff anymore, and that's one t temptation you don't have to fool with. This is an 80-year-old man. You know what the problem was? 80-year-old men don't have the same men don't have the same kind of drives that young men do, but they can form habits that are almost impossible to break. Now that's becoming a slave to a sinful thing, but by pattern and habit, you can train yourself to be a slave to anything. And so you have to ask yourself the question, if I do this, will it tend to bring me into bondage? And that's what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 6.12 when he says, all things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And we call that the principle of enslavement. Now, the fifth and last one we looked at yesterday is the question, will it hypocritically cover my sin? Will this supposed thing that I am free to do really be a cloak for my evil? 1 Peter 2.16, a cloak over my evil, a veil to cover my evil heart. 
We use the illustration of saying you're free to go to the beach, but when you go to the beach exercising your Christian liberty, you're sitting there gaga staring at all of the people in skimpy bathing suits. And so your supposed exercise of freedom is nothing more than a cloak to cover your evil intent. Now, those are the first five questions. We called that fifth one the principle of equivocation. That means to lie or falsify. Now, I'm going to give you five more if I can in the next uh, 30 minutes. Hang on to your seat. Here we go. The sixth principle. Will it violate my understanding of the Lordship of Christ? Will it violate my understanding of the Lordship of Christ? If you want a shorter question for this one, will it violate my conscience? Will it violate my conscience or my understanding of the Lordship of Christ. Let's open our Bibles to Romans 14 and examine the passage of Scripture that most directly speaks to this question. Now, here we have a situation where we have some of these doubtful things, as they've been called, or gray area issues. And we have in the early church, and we need to set a little bit of background, we have in the early church some people who are greatly liberated. They understand their freedom in Christ. For example, they're Jews, let's say. They understand they can eat pork. They understand there are no more unclean animals. They understand the revelation of God, uh, which we have in Acts chapter 10, where uh, the vision comes to Peter and the Lord says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, I've never eaten anything unclean. And the Lord says, Don't you call unclean what I have cleansed. There's no more ceremonial law, no more dietary laws, no more rituals. Don't let anybody, Paul says to the Colossians, bind you to a new moon or a Sabbath or a feast day or a festival or a dietary laws, which are only shadows of the substance or reality of Christ, which is now here. So you have some Jews who know in their minds that they're free from all that ceremonial background. They've understood that. They've come to maturity in that understanding, and they're happy to exercise their freedom. On the other hand, you have some new converts out of Judaism who are still holding to the Sabbath. They're still holding to dietary laws. They're still holding to ceremonial ritual. They're still holding to the laws of clothing and various other things. And in the church, those who are free to exercise their liberty can easily offend those who are not yet in their own mind free. They're still held to that. They just can't shake it. So you have some Gentile Christians also who are totally free. They understand their liberty in Christ. They've come out of paganism. They've come out of idol worship. And they're free from all of that. None of that really bothers them. On the other hand, you have some brand new Gentile converts who coming out of idolatry are still hard-pressed to go even near those idols in any way, shape, or form because of all that that reminds them of. And where this came into focus was in eating. Because when you went to the marketplace to buy something, you could buy meat. Say you were buying something in the city of Rome. You went into the, the marketplace. You bought some meat. The, the guy you bought it from may be selling you meat that was once offered to an idol. Why? Because people went to worship the idols or the false gods. They brought in their food, and sometimes it was vegetables, not only meat. But they brought in their food. They offered it to the idol. Some of that food was burned to the idol. Some of that food was eaten by the priest. And what remained, and it would be a mass of food because large crowds would come, was taken out the back door of the temple and sold in the public marketplace. So here comes this new Christian along, and he is invited to dinner to some Christian's house, and the guy serves him meat, and he says, This is great stuff. Where'd you get it? I bought it at so-and-so butcher shop. And he gags. That's the butcher shop that sells the meat offered to the God that I used to worship in pagan orgies and all this. I can't eat this meat because it speaks to him of all of his former pagan background. 
So he is not free in his own conscience to eat that meat. So you had then in the church all of the potential conflict of these various views of freedom. Now we know that they were free to eat meat offered to an idol. 1 Corinthians 8 says an idol is nothing anything anyway, so why worry about it? But some people in their own conscience weren't free. We also know that the Jews were free to eat anything they want and not to have to hold to the Old Testament ceremonies, but some of them didn't understand that freedom. So the issue here in these first 12 verses is don't violate your conscience. If your conscience is still weak and won't permit you to do something, then don't do it. Let me show you what he said. All right? Verse 2. One believes he may eat all things. Another who is weak eats only vegetables. Let him that eats, or let not him that eats, despise him that eats not. And let not him who eats not judge him that eats. That's the principle. Don't condemn each other for your freedoms or your lack of them. In other words, a strong believer who says, I'm free to do anything, shouldn't condemn a weak believer who, because of his conscience, doesn't feel he can do that. Neither should a weak believer, listen to this one, condemn a strong believer because of the exercise of his freedom. If he in his conscience is free to do that, and it is not forbidden in Scripture, then you have no right to bind on him that thing which you think is wrong. So don't, on the one hand, despise the weak for his weakness, and on the other hand, don't let the weak despise the strong for their strength. Verse 3 tells you why. Because God has received them. In other words, if God receives them both, then we've got to receive them both as well. Then verse 4, who are you that judges another man's servant? Did you get that? Who are you to judge another man's servant? And the, the, the imagery here is very simple. You can't judge someone who works for someone else. To his own master he stands or falls. Yes, he will be held up, for God is able to make him stand. In other words, everybody's master is whom? Is God. So we have to stand or fall to our own master. One man esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. That is, some are Sabbatarians and some are not. Some want to keep the Sabbath, some don't. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. If a man regards the day, that is, he wants to hold the Sabbath as sacred, he regards it, notice this, he regards it, verse 6, unto the Lord. In other words, if a guy wants to observe the Sabbath, he does it because he thinks he's serving whom? The Lord. It's tied to his view of the Lordship of Christ in his life, and he doesn't want to violate that. So you don't want to go to some weaker brother and say, hey, man, you are really tied up with this bondage stuff. You ought to get liberated. Come on, do this thing. So he does it. It violates what he believes the Lord would have him do. It goes against his conscience. It becomes a severe grief to him. So the principle is very simply stated this way. You ask yourself the question, will it violate my understanding of the Lordship of Christ? And if it will, then it will violate my conscience. You say, is it bad to violate my conscience? Absolutely. Why? Because your conscience, listen now, is your self-judging faculty. Your conscience is your self-judging faculty. Your conscience is what cries out to you when you do wrong and what affirms you when you do right. Your conscience is that little voice that says, don't do that, or that voice that says, do that, do that, you know it's right. Now listen, your conscience can be trained to do right and your conscience can be trained to do wrong. 
The conscience is only a flywheel. The engine is the, is the mind. And the conscience can only be engaged at the level of the power of the engine. And so the conscience responds to the mind. If you train yourself to ignore your conscience, you will blur your conscience. you understand that? And you'll get what 1 Timothy 4.2 calls a conscience seared with a hot iron. In other words, scar tissue that's insensitive. And you don't want to cultivate an insensitive conscience. People, we say about people, some people, they seem to have no conscience, right? In other words, it doesn't seem to bother them to do evil. That's because over a period of time they have trained themselves to ignore their self-judging faculty. And the principle that Paul wants to get across here is this. The person who is free and exercises his freedom to do the things he knows he can do, the person who is not free but bound by past ceremony and religious taboo and tradition and whatever, and is not free, both of them have this in common. They do what they do because they believe it pleases whom? The Lord. So let them alone. If they're doing it to please the Lord, it's a wonderful thing to train yourself to please the Lord. Do you get that? I sometimes meet people whose lives are filled with needless scruples, needless little silly rules and rituals and ceremonies and traditions that they've inherited from their evangelical tradition. But I would never castigate them for that. I might in a long-term relationship try to teach them the Word of God and lead them to liberty, but I would never force them to violate that because they're doing that because they believe it pleases whom? pleases the Lord. And their conscience is telling them that because that's in their mind and you don't want to train yourself to learn to violate your conscience or you have eliminated a God-given restraint in your life. You understand that? So simply said, you ask yourself the question, will it violate my conscience? Will it go against that which I know to, to be the best? Will it go against my understanding of the Lordship of Christ? Or to put it another way, will it violate what I believe to be the Lord's will for me? Verse 7 picks up this same idea. None of us lives to himself and no man dies to himself. Whether we live, we live to the Lord. Whether we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For this, to this end Christ both died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. Now, the whole point of verses 7 to 9 is to establish the Lordship of Christ. And what he is saying here is, all of us, verse 7, live to the Lordship of Christ. He died to be Lord. He is Lord. We respond to his Lordship. And in so doing, what we do, we do because we believe this is the will of the one who is the Lord. So we don't want to, we don't want to usurp the role of conscience. There was a book recently uh, written, I guess maybe it's been a few years now, called Decision Making and the Will of God. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a great big thick book of about 450 pages on God's will. The intent of the book basically is to say there is no subjective leading of the Holy Spirit in the matter of the will of God. The main thesis of the book is that there is no specific will of God in your life, which the author calls the dot. He's trying to get rid of that dot theory. There's one place to be, one person to marry, one decision in life about career, one school to go to, uh, and so forth and so on. And a very narrow view. But in reacting the other way, what he comes up with is this. If there isn't a scripture verse that speaks of the issue, you're free to do whatever you want. The problem with that is you just eliminated the subjective ministry of the Spirit of God. 
And part of the subjective ministry of the Spirit of God, which has myriad examples in Scripture, is through the conscience. So learn to listen to your conscience. Or someday you'll be sad to wake up and realize that the voice of conscience is not as loud as you would wish it to be to restrain you from evil things. So let's keep in mind that in what we do, the simple question must be asked, Will it violate my understanding of the Lordship of Christ, or will it in some way go against what my conscience tells me? I remember my dad was in a meeting in the Midwest, I think it was Bay City, Michigan, and he said to the pastor on Sunday afternoon, he was preaching for a week there, and he said to him, he said, I want to go play golf in the morning, would you like to go? The pastor said to him, did you come here to win souls or to play golf? And my dad said, well, a little bit of both. I mean, after all, it is Monday morning and we could play some golf. He said, I'm, I'm greatly distressed at that, that you would come here and that you would want to go out after the Lord's Day and with all that we need to do to win the city to Christ and waste your time playing golf. He said, I refuse to do that. And my dad, wanting to be gracious to him, talked him into playing golf. This is a true story. He said, I'm going, but I'm, I'm not liking it. He showed up Monday and gave a little speech about, I know the Lord doesn't want me here. I'm here because you've asked me to come. I'm trying to be a good host, but God doesn't want me here. And what was really fascinating about it was, they were teed off on the first hole, and going down the fairway, a guy hit a slice on the hole coming back this way, hit this pastor dead in the chest with the golf ball. He fell on the ground. He says, I knew it. I knew it. I knew God would punish me. You want to know that guy never played another game of golf in his life? See? Well, you know something? Shouldn't have made him do that. I don't know whether God hit him with a golf ball. I'm sure if God played golf, he'd hit straight drives, to be honest with you. But um, he got hit by a golf ball. Whatever the circumstances of getting hit by a golf ball, he got hit by it. But the thing was... There, was, there shouldn't have been any pressure put on that guy to violate his conscience. Now, is it a sin to play golf on Monday? Of course it isn't a sin to play golf on Monday. It isn't a sin at all in it, of itself. But to make that man violate his conscience was to bring about in his life great grief. Because he was acting against his conscience and doing something which by his own understanding violated the will of the Lord. He had come out from under a responsible act of obedience to the Lordship of Christ. You don't want to do that. God works through your conscience. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 25 to 29, three times in a row, Paul says, For conscience sake, for conscience sake, for conscience sake, do this or don't do this. Paul talks about a pure conscience. Peter talks about a good conscience, a conscience that is, a vo that is void of offense toward God. We want to maintain a clear conscience. Very important. So let's call that principle the principle of, uh, for lack of a better term, encroachment. When you do what you believe in your own heart violates the Lordship of Christ, you have encroached on His territory. You really have taken over the Lordship in your own mind. You want to know something interesting? 
Think about this. When you face the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and me too, the Bible tells us we'll be judged for what we've done, right? 2 Corinthians 5, we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us will receive for the things done in his body, whether they be good or foul loss, good or worthless. But you know, it isn't only what we've done we'll be judged for. 1 Corinthians 4, listen to this. 1 Corinthians 4, just a first couple of verses of that chapter. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. And when the Lord comes, this is how he'll judge. He will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise from God. Now listen. Ultimately, before the Lord, in the matter of gray areas, get this. In the matter of sin, sin will be a very clear-cut issue. In the matter of gray areas, you will be judged on the basis of your motive. You get that? You'll be judged on the basis of your motive. Well, you say, I don't do that or I do that because I want to respond to the Lord Christ. That's a good motive. And here you could have a weaker brother who would say, I, I wouldn't do that. I, I would never uh, run a lap on Sunday. I, I wouldn't violate the Sabbath. When he faces the Lord, he will be commended if the motive for that was a desire to be submissive to the Lordship of Christ. Do you understand that? Even though in and of itself it wasn't a moral thing. The pure motive spoke of the integrity of his heart. And we'll find in, in Christianity, and you, if you don't already know, will find it out soon enough, that the spectrum of Christian behavior in the gray area range is very broad. And since these are non-moral things in and of themselves, the criteria by which God evaluates your doing them or not doing them is the motive of your heart. And if you do or don't do because you believe it would violate the Lord, that's a good motive. If you say, oh, I'm going to do it anyway, even though in my heart I believe it would dishonor Him, then you have willfully dishonored Him with your motive, even though the act itself didn't dishonor Him. You get that? So that's a very important principle. The principle of encroachment. All right, number seven. We've got to move fast. Number seven. Here's the question. Will it help other Christians by its example? What I do, if seen, and surely it will be seen, or if given testimony to and Surely we may have some time to testify to what we have done. Will it help other Christians? Will it strengthen them? Will it encourage them? Will it build them up? For example, uh, if I do this and other Christians say, Oh, I can do that too. He did that. Will it lead them into a helpful situation? I could say, for example, I have the freedom to drink wine. If I mixed it properly with water so it wasn't intoxicating, I could drink wine. And I would then ask myself the question, all right, if I were to do that and other people were to say, John MacArthur drinks, ah, that must be a spiritual thing or a thing that's at least acceptable. I'll do that. And some guy becomes an alcoholic. That's not been helpful to him. True? Or if I were to say, well, I, I go to movies and I'm very selective about the movies I go to. I mean, I don't even believe in profanity, so I basically go to foreign movies, so I don't even know what they're saying. That's how spiritual, that's how spiritual I am. And I go into the lobby when they kiss. You know, I mean, I'm very spiritual. 
So I can say, look, I, can, I have the freedom to do that. I'm very mature. And somebody else is going to say, oh, I see the pattern. Christians do that. And they go plunging in there and, of course, write down the proverbial drain in terms of their moral standing and stature. So I have to ask the fair question, is it going to help other people? I, I cannot exist in isolation, can I? You say, yeah, but it's different for you because everybody knows you. No, it's the same for you because somebody knows you, too. We all have to face the same thing. So there needs to be a willingness to set aside some liberty. Look at verse 13 of Romans 14 while we're there. Here's how to evaluate things. That you never put a stumbling block or occasion to fall in a brother's way. You don't ever want to do anything that, if followed, could lead some other brother into a sin. He's discussing this all the way through to the end of the chapter, verse 23. But just a couple of notations. We don't have time to really fully develop it. I've been preaching on it on Sunday nights, as you know, at church. But verse 13, don't cause your brother to stumble. Verse 14 says, don't bring them grief. Uh, verse 15, 14 and 15. Uh, because here's how you grieve your brother. The idea here is if you do something and he says, oh, boy, I guess I can do that. His conscience really doesn't let him do it. Conscience says, no, no, no. But he sees you do it, so he does it anyway. And then he's grieved because he's violated his conscience. He feels guilty. He's anxious in his heart. So you don't want to do anything that will cause him grief. You don't want to do anything that will cause him to stumble. To stumble means to fall into sin. You don't want to do anything that could lead a person into sin. You don't want to do anything that could bring guilt on them, like saying, forcing them, like the guy playing golf, to do something they believe is wrong. When they do it, they feel great guilt in their hearts. Also in verse 15, at the end of the verse, it says, literally the word could be translated, devastate not him with your food for whom Christ died. And the word apollomy has the idea of, so, of ruination, of uh, uh, of disrupting their spiritual progress, of devastating their spiritual development. Because you did something, they saw you do it, they did it, and it devastated them because they couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle it. I remember a man in our church came to me one time and he said, uh, he said, I talked to some brothers in the church and they told me that in order to be a good steward, I needed to invest some money in stocks. So he said, I went out and bought a thousand shares of stock. And he said, it has ruined my spiritual life. He said, it has literally ruined my spiritual life. Every single day I go to the paper and I read about that and my whole attitude toward life depends upon whether that stock is up or down. He said, I have lost the ability to control my own spiritual life and it is now controlled by the stock market. So he said, I can't handle this and I want to give it to you because I believe you could handle this. So that was a difficult position for me, right? On the one hand, I'm saying, I'm not sure I can handle this. On the other hand, I'm saying, a thousand shares of stock you're going to give me. Praise God. So he gave it to me. And you know what? You know what I did every day? I checked the stock page. And finally, I said, this is ridiculous. And I sold the stuff. And I think when I sold it, it had fallen to 50 cents. And within two years, it was worth $20 a share, which is fine. I don't care about that part. But I understood what it was. There were some men who were able to handle that, but 
when some others tried to follow in that same liberty, it became totally corrupting in their spiritual development. And for me, it was an absolutely unnecessary diversion. And I had to get rid of it. So you never want to do anything that will lead another person. If they say, hey, I can't do that, don't force them to do that. Don't push someone to do that. And be careful what examples you set. But this really puts a tremendous burden on us, doesn't it? To walk circumspectly. Walk with wisdom. And then in verse 20, he says that, because of your desire to eat a certain kind of food, which is emblematic of certain liberties, because of your freedom to do that, don't destroy the work of God. I love that. Do you know that every other believer is the work of God? Back in verse 15, he says, for whom Christ died. Other believers are the ones for whom Christ died. All other believers are the work of God. And the last thing you and I ever want to do is tear down what God's trying to build up, right? So we don't want to devastate another Christian by doing something that in and of itself is not wrong, but could lead them into sin, or if they did it, could lead them into guilt in their own minds. So he closes out in verses 22 and 23 by saying, don't flaunt your liberty. Let's call this principle example. We'll call it example. Example. Now I'm just going to very briefly mention the three last ones, and they're obvious, and I don't need to spend time on them. Number eight, ask yourself this question. Will it lead others to Christ? Will it lead others to Christ? Now, we skipped over a little section in Romans 14 purposely. Go back to verse 16. Romans 14:16 says, Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he that in these things serves Christ, now watch, is acceptable to God and what? Approved by men. You've got to think about the testimony that you have even outside the family of the redeemed. Will it lead someone to Christ? Will it lead someone to Christ? In 1 Corinthians, don't look it up, 1 Corinthians 10, 27 to 30, you have a perfect illustration of this. Let me set the illustration up. You're a Christian. You've just been saved out of paganism. You used to worship at an idol temple, and that idol temple represents everything vile and evil. There was orgies and drunkenness and debauchery and gluttony and all the worst of evils connected with it. So you're saved out of that, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 27 to 30. You go to dinner at another Christian's house. He invites you in. He serves you a plate of, of food. There is an unbeliever there. Okay? There's an unbeliever there. Paul says, now you've got attention. No, the host is the unbeliever, and you're there with a Christian friend. The host is an unbeliever. The host serves you meat out of the very temple you've been saved out of. Meat offered to idols. And you're just... You just can't bring yourself to eat that stuff. Like... Uh, so many people converted out of alcoholism, maybe who hate alcoholism or out of a rock music background who despise the very sound of it or whatever. You can't touch it. Now you've got attention. You've got a Christian brother here and he would be offended too because he's with you. But you've got a pagan host and you're saying to yourself, look, if I eat this stuff, I'm going to gag my own conscience. I'm going to offend my brother, but I'm going to please the host. Right? And he's the unsafe person. If I don't eat, 
I'm going to keep my own conscience. I'm going to show love to my brother too, but I'm going to offend my host. You know what Paul says to do? Don't eat. Don't eat. You know why? It's more important that the host see your clear conscience and the love you have for your brother than that you should eat that meat. Because the most convincing argument for evangelism is the love that we share. First, isn't that what the Lord said in John 13, 34 and 35? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. That's a perfect testament. So what you want to do is show love to your brother. And even though you're going to say to the pagan, I'm sorry, I know you've gone to a lot of trouble. I just can't eat that because it would offend my brother. Wow. That's, that's the character that is convincing to the world. And so that's what he's meaning here in Romans 14. He says, you want to do what you do to serve Christ, to be acceptable to God, and also to be approved of men. And what the world wants to see is that kind of loving character, that kind of pure conviction, that kind of concern for each other. Now, let's call that the principle of evangelism. And so we ask the question, if I do this, will it win others to Christ? We could develop that a lot more. There's some other passages. I won't take time. But you can ask the question, will it lead others to Christ? Or will it lead them away from Christ? And then two final ones, and you can ask these of yourself constantly when you come to any decision in life. Number nine, will it be consistent with Christ-likeness? Will it be consistent with Christ-likeness? Or to put it another way, will it be what Jesus would do? Will it be what Jesus would do? And I mean, this, this is a very important question. A very important question. Will it be what Jesus would do? First John 2, 6. He that says he abides in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Would Jesus do it? I mean, that's the, that's the key question, isn't it? Would Jesus do it? Let's call that the principle of emulation. We want to emulate Christ. The principle of emulation. Would Jesus do it? Frankly... Um, that question may be only the only question you need to ask. Would Jesus do it? And then number ten, will it glorify God? Will it bring glory to God? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, again, we've been there particularly yesterday, but 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and you know the verse, verse 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all what? The glory of God. The context there is the context of liberty and the weaker and the stronger and all the things we've been talking about. So the point here is, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever it is, you do it all to the glory of God. And that means giving no offense neither to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. And that's one of the scriptures you can connect up with this point on evangelism. 1 Corinthians 10, 33. I do it so that people can be saved. I restrict my liberty and I do it so that God may be glorified. Let's call that the principle of exaltation. The principle of exaltation. Now, I call these, if I may use a pun, the ease of decision-making. 
the ease of decision-making. This makes decision-making easy. Let me go through the checklist, and then we'll have a closing prayer. Expedience, will it be to my spiritual advantage? Edification, will it build me up? Excess, will it slow me down in the race? Enslavement, will it bring me to bondage? Excuse, will it be a covering for my sin? Encroachment, will it go against what I understand to be the Lordship of Christ? Example, will it set a helpful pattern for others to follow? Evangelism, will it lead others to Christ? Emulation, will it be like Christ? And exaltation, will it glorify God? Now, people, we have just touched the surface of these things. Um, there's so many more things that I wish we had time to cover, and so many of these things even more intensely. But I really believe that if you can get a grip on these principles, and you probably ought to write them out somewhere, it would be a good thing to stick on your desk, stick in the back of your Bible, not because they're from me, but because they're from the Word of God. And it isn't always a problem in our lives. I mean, it is never a problem in our lives if we're Christians to know what's right or wrong. But the area of the gray area is, an, is a region in which we have tremendous struggle, don't we? And these are things you need to go back to over and over and over again. We would do well to be disciplined enough to memorize these principles and these questions so that they become so much a part of our thinking that they act like a picket fence through which we have to go to get to whatever behavior is presented to us. Let's stand for a word of prayer. Father, we feel like we've uh, been running fast this morning, maybe too fast. And yet we trust your spirit to apply to our hearts these things. We know from the depths of our heart, because we love you, that we long to do what is right. And we want to avoid what is wrong. And Lord, we know that's clearly revealed in your word. Father, even though sin finds its way into the picture through our unredeemed humanness, the deepest desires of our hearts are to do those things that are right. But sometimes, Lord, we don't know. Because the thing itself is not evil, and we don't know. Help us to train ourselves. To train ourselves and our minds and our thoughts to ask and answer these questions. That we may do all that we do to your glory. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.